Welcome back to Creators in Motion by Portrait Displays. I had the honor of sitting down with an extraordinary visionary in the world of color grading, Shane Ruggieri, Dolby Laboratories Advanced Imaging Systems creative lead and a true master of his craft. Shane Ruggieri's expertise in color grading goes far beyond technical skills. He understands that every story has its own unique tone and he masterfully brings that tone to life through color. With a deep understanding of eye traits, emotion, intimacy, Shane waves his magic into every frame, elevating the visual storytelling experience. His work isn't just about making things looking pretty, no, it's about enhancing the story's power and impact. As we delve into conversation, Shane shares his wisdom and the art and science of color grading. From the technical intricacies of his color tools and the profound impact of high dynamic range technology, his knowledge is unparalleled. Shane's passion for HDR is contagious. He believes in its creative potential, pushing the boundaries of what's possible in visual storytelling, and his expertise has made him an invaluable asset to Dolby. Join us in this episode of Creators in Motion as we explore the intersection of technical prowess and storytelling finesse with one of the industry's brightest minds. So finally, finally, we were trying to get you into the studio for such a long time and uh, yeah, there was COVID in the way and we all have lives and we all have work and then it took us a while to really get to this point, but it's great to have you with us, Shane Ruggieri, today. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I remember the time when you and I met the first time, that was in 2016, it almost feels like a light year away. And uh, it was at the hotel bar at the Loews Hotel. It was the annual Simpty Show 2016. And um, you were giving a paper that was called Breaking Out of the 100 Knit Box, A Colorist View of HDR Grading. And it was such a compelling paper that I thought, wow, I need to talk to this guy. <laughs> and uh, so um, that's what we did. So we talked, I, I met you at the bar and we started to talk about all that HDR stuff. And I was very, very excited about it. And I thought maybe one day we can do something about it. Now, finally, we have you on the show and we're so happy to have you uh, with us and we want to talk about this. So maybe before we go into the weeds of HDR, we probably want to talk about your current job, right? So um, your advanced imaging system creative lead at Dolby Laboratories. And I thought like as a German, I was thinking like, okay, do I need a Dalek coach actually to get along with this, with this title um, to correctly get that on camera or the audio recording? But maybe, maybe just let's talk a little bit about um, what that is and um, what that current position actually entails. What does it mean? And, and what are you doing there? And um, what makes you so passionate about what you do? Um, and what brought you to Dolby at that time? Well, when I was younger, what brought me to color was music. And I was a DJ from, I think about 13 years old to about 19 or 20. And I was mixing and scratching hip hop, really getting into the thing. And I really enjoyed creating my own songs, uh, throwing on a, you know, just a beat track and then throwing in different lyrics, etc. At some point towards 18, 19, I was like, you know, I really would like to be able to mix video. Uh, as much as I mix the audio. And this is when MTV was starting to come out and there was music video and all this stuff. So it really just 
got my interest. Um, and so it, that's what brought me into this industry. I really wanted to be in the film industry creating stuff. I wanted to be a creator. Um, and so I started there and, and started moving into uh, what I knew, which was management. I knew how to, to, you know, my first job, and it was a studio manager and a producer, and then working in a sound studio. And then I slowly but surely worked my way into doing the work <laughs> versus producing the work, uh, which is kind of an opposite way of direction of, of what typically people do. Um, but I wanted to really get my hands on on it. And, and that's what brought me in, was my love of music and my, my passion to remix something and make it my own. Um, it drove me to, to doing video. Yeah, that's an excellent answer. Um, I wouldn't have expected this, that music actually brings you to color. I've never really had that. Um, this is really a very interesting approach, uh, actually looking at this. That's really pretty cool. Um, so, um, but these were the early days, right? Um, and so, um, I think there must be kind of an inciting incident, right? Where you started to deal with the tools and you suddenly started to realize, oh yeah, that's the way how I can manipulate color. This is exactly um, how I suddenly become so much more creative than I could have been in the past, right? Um, so uh, what was the moment or what was the person maybe or a mentor or something in your life that actually uh, that kicked in and you said, oh yeah, that's exactly what I want to do with my life. I mean, this is, this is why I want to do it and that is why I'm so driven by this. So early on in my career, I was editing a lot. And I was one of those people who, I didn't want to just give the footage back the way I got it. I, I wanted to fix it up. I wanted to make it look a little bit better. We were working with a lot of you know, material that was just shot purely Rec. 709, uh, Betacam, 8DV, DV. Um, and a lot of times it, was, it just didn't look vibrant to me like I saw on TV. And so I would use the tools available mostly in Final Cut Pro. Um, I was an early adopter. I adopted at Final Cut Pro 1. I was working on Avid, Avid before that. And um, as soon as I saw Final Cut Pro 1, I was like, okay, the world's going to change. I need to get into this. I bought it immediately, paid my thousand bucks. And uh, right, I started collecting plugins. And anything that I could do to the image that needed to be done, I would have a plugin to do it. And so I was that editor who would fix the footage, bring it up, vibrate make it kind of vibe a bit better. And so as I started to do this more and more and more, I just kind of became known for that. I would do that building my three-way, you know, using the three-way color corrector inside Final Cut Pro, and I'd build seven or eight rooms using seven or eight of these plugins, the same plugin. And so what I would do is use the first one for the master um, or use the first one for the, you know, the the I would say your your main grade and then the, all the other ones would be secondaries and inside that color corrector you could actually do isolations um, and most people didn't even realize that there was a little twirl down menu and you could isolate things and so I, I was doing this over and over and over and one day I was on the the set of at Apple doing iPhone 1 and Gary Coates was the um, he was the colorist on this on the actual project and him and I were chatting, and I looked at his, his color session. He was using Final Cut Pro 2 because they asked him to use Final Cut to do the grading. And uh, he had built out the same structure that I was using. And I was like, Gary, what? I do that. He's like, really? I was like, yeah, I, I, I put multiple, you know, sometimes in, in, you know, I put a, another plug inside there to, uh, you know, just to fix things or to, to do whatever I need to do. 
He's like, yeah, that's basically you're building rooms. You know, you're building your, your primaries and then your secondaries. He goes, that's just, and I was like, wow. And it struck me at that point, like, I can get paid, you know, on a big set for doing the same thing that I already do. Wow, this is an interesting thing. I'm like, is this a real job? You know, is this a real thing that you can do? And he's like, yeah. So, I mean, he wasn't a mentor, but he was definitely an influencer. Gary Coates, um, he's, he's been over at Pixar. Not sure if he's still there. He might still be there now. Um, but he was definitely an influence to let me know that this is a real thing. Um, I didn't come up in the Hollywood studios. I came up as a producer, colorist, editor, or editor, and then became a colorist um, because it, it, was, it felt like the natural progression for manipulating the image and really being able to get into the story and help the story be told. Oh, that's a great story. That's beautiful. Um, I mean, I've heard so many stories, right, about people who actually, yeah, they met their mentors or, you know, they went on with their careers, but, but this is very, very, very compelling. Um, great. And um, I, think, I think that's also, I remember um, um, we, in our show, Color Matters, right, uh, Alistair Arnold, the senior colorist at Photochem, he actually said something similar, right? He said, being a colorist is the greatest job in the world. Um, because I'm getting paid for doing things so well and working with color. I think that's so beautiful. Getting paid to do color? I mean, that's absolutely great, right? I love it. I get paid to color. You know, like that's, 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 a, that's a great job for me. You know, whether inside or outside the lines, I, I get paid to color. Um, so speaking of the colorist itself as a job, I mean, how would you describe what the job of a colorist is in a nutshell? Um, how would you describe that? What is a colorist's job? I think if you really look at what a colorist job is, you'll find that it's basically an interpreter. And what that means is that you're sitting there trying to interpret what someone is trying to convey to an audience to, to elicit a reaction. And so they're not going to use words that are not every you know, director, producer, person is going to use the words that directly translate to turn the saturation up or turn the mid-tone contrast down two clicks. It's not that. It's make me feel happy. Make, make this feel a little more sad. Make this feel like, you know, desperately confused. And you have to take those inputs and know that you have to not use not only your uh, personal translation matrix, you have to use theirs because you need to understand what that person means by that and what they're trying to get to and then use your experience and use the, the knowledge that you have, not only technical, but your understanding of the human condition, your understanding of the uh, human visual system, art, the, the purpose of color. Um, as well as the tool set and use those in combinations that then show that person you understand what they're saying and that it's making that image be what they imagined it to be. That's your goal. Your, your goal is to get out of the way of your own self and your own input here and translate what that person is telling you into something that they can see and say, that's it, that's it. Right there. No, that's that's a beautiful answer. You're an interpreter um, for for the director and then the vision, right, and, and the color. I think um, looking at this, 
all the, the, the impact actually the colorist has on, on the job and on the project, final, final look and feel of, this, of the program, there should be something like an Emmy Award, right? Or like, a, like, a, like an Academy Award or whatever. And maybe there should be a little bit more acknowledgement, right, of that craft. Um, what do you think? You're right. The idea of having uh, either an Academy Award or some recognition by the industry for this position it's long overdue. And there's some industry uh, folks trying to work on that now. I know the CSI uh, group that I'm part of is working on that um, because we are an integral part of that workflow and that pipeline. We are making choices and making decisions n not on our own and not in, not in isolation. We're working as a team member to take those images and to create something that maybe couldn't be captured on set or has now become something else because of the editorial process that they didn't have and then we're relighting that scenario or that whole scene. Like we do relight, we will fix things, we will you know, basically change something, edit something or create something that wasn't captured. And it's, it's adding art, it's adding something that wasn't, it may be thought of or maybe not thought of or thought of right at that moment and it's more and more um, becoming at the point of the color correction that we, we can make very, very drastic decisions with obviously direction and, and not on our own all the time um, to change a feeling in a movie and, and to really change how that movie is, is interpreted and taken in. And um, I think that's very powerful and I do think that the industry does need to recognize this as an art form that's worthy uh, of an award. Um, I think independently from, from the DP or the director, I mean, look at even DITs, right? They're already taking care of color on set, right? They're, I mean, it's massive what they do, right? If you think about it, like um, on how they um, do the pre-grading probably, how so much, you have to understand about the camera formats, you have to understand about the technology, and, and there's so much actually involved already to get it right if you want to have a perfect workflow in place. So I think um, there's so much more and it's really great to see how those things then become a final product. And so um, um, not being a colorist myself, right, um, I think this is really one of the, the jobs I really envy most because I think it's beautiful to see how those things come in place, how you make a, a show look like uh, a thing that was shot in the 80s or it gives you the, your memories back as like Sunday morning, you know, watching your favorite uh, show and when you were a kid and then today you evoke that emotions right just by actually getting the color right um, uh, That said if you think about this um, How does your current position at Dolby as an advanced imaging systems creative lead does? Uh, what does that actually mean? How does this all, all of that what you experience in your career so far? L led to what you do today at Dolby So most of my job is around developing the tools and the workflow um, which enable the future of storytelling in Dolby. And a lot of that is around um, the volumetric space that I'm working in. Um, another part of my job, I have really three main parts, and, and that's designing the tools. The second part is um, being a bridge between the technical side as well as the, the artistic side. And so in all the variations, working with partners, internal people, um, making sure that voice of the creative is, is taken in a, into account as we develop or move towards you know, developing new technologies. And then the last part is outreach. And that outreach is doing things like this, um, doing interviews, 
uh, speaking on subjects, writing papers, being involved in like the SIMTI 2016. I'll be doing more of that because um, I'm working through the CTO's office and under Pat Griffiths, who's the former <laughs> president of SIMTI. And so, you know, that is a, a big push for me is to, you know, start taking more on in that role. I'm actually, I'm actually currently the San Francisco uh, section manager uh, for SIMTI here locally, uh, or one of six. And so it's, it's a good opportunity for me in, in this position to make sure that the artist's voice is heard. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, I met Pat a couple of times. Yeah, I also know him through the UHDA Alliance. Um, since we're also a member of UHD Alliance, right? And that's that's where we actually um, met met him a couple of times. Yeah. Um, so, is there maybe something just for the young listeners, um, our young audience, maybe future filmmakers or people in film school um, who want to become a media specialist? Is there something maybe? Uh, you can teach them from your own experience. So I know it's sometimes the, the school of hard knocks, right? If you have to figure out everything by yourself. What, what does it mean if you would have a chance to tell them what they need to do? Um, what, does, what do they need to succeed in, in the modern media business? Is it, is it grit? Is it motivation? Is it luck? Is it, uh, what is it? I mean, what, what's the recipe for getting someone going and, and really become successful in the business? Okay, if I had a piece of advice to give to the, say, the young filmmakers out there, and not necessarily young, just any filmmaker out there, um, understand that learning starts as soon as you're in this industry. As soon as you say you're in this industry, that's when the learning starts. It's not done because you've gone to film school. It's not done because you've taken a course or it's not done there. It's a lifetime of learning. And if you don't embrace that, you're going to find yourself kind of behind. Um, and if you do embrace it, you'll find some really interesting ways of, of growing. Um, I, would, I would say focus on four different areas. I would say focus on your technical area, art, um, understanding the human condition and the human visual system, as well as um, psychology. I think those four areas, because on the technical side, what I mean is specifically know your tool. Understand that inside and out, not just what it does, but why it does it, how it does it. Understand the science behind it if you can. Dig into the science. There's a thing called color science, and you should really look at that. Even if you don't have to become a color scientist, but you should understand what's going on there because that's going to give you information on how to be creative. Like being creative comes from taking your knowledge and remixing it in ways. Well, what is your knowledge? Right? So you need a technical knowledge, understanding your tool. You need, um, uh, I would say, understanding art. Um, so what is the role of color in art? Ask yourself that question. And it's going to be a different answer in different art forms. So what is that role? You should understand that. If you're going to start to manipulate color, and you're going to start to say, this is why we're doing this, or here's a recommendation, you need a foundation upon that. And there's no better foundation than to understand color's role in your life and in, in art and in these, these ways of expressing things and how it affects you. So that gets me to the next section of, of the human condition. You are an interpreter as a colorist or as a filmmaker, you're an interpreter. You're taking things that happen and you're trying to craft a reaction from the audience. So in order to do that, you need to understand that audience. 
And the human condition is all the things that happen to you in your life. And, you know, from birth, childbirth to, you know, your, your graduation to all the things that happen to you while you're alive, understanding those things and the emotions of those things, because that's what you're crafting. You're manipulating color in order to, to elicit these emotions from somebody else watching. And then the last part of his psychology. Well, I'd say back up a little bit. Understanding the human visual system also is extremely important. These little you know, nodules in your head, uh, they do things and they'll fool you. And, and understanding that is very important and to, to really get, uh, and that's in HDR, there's some really interesting stuff there. We'll talk about that. Um, but the last piece of that is psychology. Um, as an interpreter, as a person who has to deal with people and, and interpret what they're trying to say to you uh, and what that means in color terms, it's extremely important to remove yourself from that moment. This person may be a jerk. This person may be wonderful, happy, sad, whatever's going on. Something's happening in that day and they're trying to communicate to you. You need to remove yourself from that aspect and be in control of the emotion, be in control of the, of the situation to be able to be open to interpret what's going on to get it into the color. And, and separating yourself from that, it, it takes time, it takes lessons, it takes energy to not respond and not react to these other stimulus that have nothing to do with your job and nothing to do with what you have to accomplish. It's your artwork that's going up there, but it's not your message. It's not you. Separate yourself from that. So I think if you rolled those things into one, understand your tools, understand the art, the role of color in, those, in the world, understand the person and the people you're communicating to, and then also really understand that you are not in charge of this thing. This is not your puppy or baby or something. It's somebody else's, and you're there to facilitate adding what you can. That's what you're there for. So keep those in mind. Yeah, that's very interesting as, as what you said, because I think there are specific things you need some life experience, right? It's like a director that probably has a vision for a movie and, and a script or whatever, and then you want to really come across and get this across to the audience with, with, with the depth and emotion you actually know how things feel. It's because you probably have that life experience, right? If you don't have that life experience, I remember I had at film school um, a teacher that was telling me there are specific uh, uh, genres or, or I would say specific topics if you don't have that experience it's really hard to make a good movie right and I think as a director because you need to get this across you have to to get your actors doing what what what's necessary and and that goes beyond just the acting of course because it's the all, overall vision and I think that that's very interesting to see yeah I think if you look at the role of the colorist they have to understand all the different departments and understand okay, yeah, you're putting these people in front of the camera and trying to get this, this reaction. And it it's actually extends beyond the set. The director is looking at the audience when he's looking at the set or she's looking at the set. They're seeing what that audience member might experience there. And so they're working through the actors back to the, they're working through the actors back to the, um, the audience, if you will, and that's also what the colorist's role is, too, is to go behind the director, see through the director to the action, to the audience, and, try, and then back to the director and try to, try to get that to be exactly what that person is after. So 
maybe start looking a little bit into how the things with HDR started, right? I remember I looked at my notes basically from 2016. I still have them on my iPad. Um, I was still looking at uh, the notes and the specific show where you talked about the leaving the 100 nit box, right? And because of Rec. 709, BT 709, HD color, and the standard that was standard at that time, right? Um, where are we today and, and what has changed at that point? Yeah, when I first joined Dolby, I was uh, it was about 2010 uh, when they they brought me over to start contracting. I started contracting in 2001, uh, doing some HD work with them, uh, and then in 2010, my buddy Alex he he invited me to come over and work on this thing called HDR, and I was like, oh, or actually at that time it was EDR or VDR. Uh, it didn't have a real name yet, and um, when I got there, I was like, okay, this sounds interesting. So let me see this thing. And they showed me the PRM, um, and, and it was you know pushed to 600 nits. Um, and at that time, it was still gamma, um, but in the early days, uh, and then PQ was later. But at 600 nits, when I saw that, my jaw dropped because it, it was not only brightness. Um, you've got to think about a color volume, right? A color volume is not just a, a single line of brightness. It also brings all the colors with it. Right, so you have different shades of color and, and and vividness of color. So the content that I was shown, I was just blown away. I was like, okay, six times SDR, this is amazing. This is it was the bee's knees, as as I put it, I think back then. I was like, this is I'm done. This is totally great. Um, but then uh, they they had an experimental um, <laughs> monitor <laughs> that was called the P6 Mono, and that went. Close to 30,000 nits. 30,000. Uh, that changed my relationship with content. When I saw the image, it felt like I could, like it was just there behind glass. It felt like I could reach through and, and grab the flower. I could reach through and touch the vase. I could reach through and, and touch the face or whatever was on the screen. It felt like it was just on the other side of this glass. And that exploded my mind. It made me feel like, holy cow, this is, there's going to be so many opportunities to connect to, to the content that just didn't exist in the SDR world. Because there, the SDR world, you, you had this you know, suspension of disbelief, right? You know it's not real. You knew it wasn't real, and therefore it made it safe. Horror films, you're safe. There's a distance. All these things, you have a distance. And that's what kind of made it alluring and, and safe and interesting, but it wasn't real, right? So there was this always disconnect, um, and it was just all in your belief system. This changed that. This HDR thing at the time, it, it revolutioned, revolutionized my thinking of how to use it in a storyline or how to get reactions, because I was heavily into reactions at that that phase. So um, when we were working with the with the 600 nit and then we moved over to a 4000 nit pulsar, so uh, as we start to see all these bright monitors, it became very clear that we need to figure out why we needed to do things. Not just that we could make pretty pictures. The, a pretty picture and brightness and dark darks and bright brights, that's, that's not HDR. It's an aspect of HDR. It's a tool you can use. 
And I've said this several times, it's, it's just one aspect. Um, and it's not for everything. You shouldn't put it on everything. It's not a one size fits all. It's not a LUT, you know, that you can just do HDR. You're now HDR, great, because it's bright and dark. Um, there's, there's physical interactions that you want. So around the time of that, that explosion of all these bright monitors, it's like, okay, well, what is the, what is the reaction that we're after? And so I didn't have any way of knowing what a reaction was going to be at those light levels. So that's where I started doing those examinations of taking my light meter and going out and, and taking photos and measuring the real world and just understanding what was really out there that I was experiencing on a daily level that I had intimate knowledge with. Like I'm very, everybody is very intimate with their understanding and interactions of light and color in the real world. They know, they, they can, Sometimes it's, it's just an easy glance and all of a sudden that scene is set in your mind. There's a connection there. And I didn't know what those translated to in terms of nits. So I went out and measured to say, okay, well, in the real world, this is what it is at daytime or at noon. This is what it is at three o'clock. This is what it is at five o'clock. This is what it is at nine o'clock or whatever. Um, and at different directions facing the sun, you know, all the way, all the way around. Um, because, and we found that, or I found that, that even the same situation, the same scene with the sun, say, setting over your right shoulder, you're looking this way, you get a certain set of contrast, you get a certain set of color, you get a certain set of brightnesses, flip that camera around, point it this way, it's a different story. And today we normalize that stuff. Or back then, we would just normalize it, right? Both cameras, okay, well, it's different brightness, okay, shade it, silk it, do whatever you got to do, it's got to be the same. It's like, why? That's not what happens in real life. Maybe you want that, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong in doing that. It's your story. Do it how you want it. Um, but it's also not required, and that was the important part. It's no longer required that you normalize everything because that light is a storytelling element. That contrast, that, that positioning in the world with this big bright bulb of, you know, sun casting in or inside lighting or whatever, your choice of where you're sitting at the table, are you more in the dark, are you more in the light, it, it says something. And that was a very interesting concept for me to explore. Um, and that's what, if you look at those images, I think from that, that talk, I, I showed a bunch of images of what those light levels are. And it was surprising to a lot of folks. They're kind of like, holy cow, like when I train colorists to work in HDR, I tell them, go get a light meter, measure your real world, understand what it is. So you have a baseline of knowing this is what happens in the real world. Here's the ratios. So if you're going to work and give suggestions for things, know that these people are intimate with this ratios. They, they know these things because you're outside. <laughs> you live outside, you live inside. You know, my studio is dark, but there's four 3000 nit pin lights in the room that when you look directly at it and measure it, it's 3,000 nits plus. So in order to create that dark room accurately, I need at least 3,000 nits, <laughs> right? So it, it's, as you start to develop these, these understandings of what the real world light situation is, you can then be in a better position to then try to either manipulate that into the story and push that into the story, into that scene, if you want, if it makes sense to the director, 
or know that you're backing it off for a reason. And that reason you're going you're gonna to do something by backing that off, right? And it's purposeful. So I wanted to be purposeful, not just, oh, let's crank it up because we can. That's HDR. No, that's not HDR. That's a brilliant answer. I mean, uh, from all of those kind of things, uh, when I remember one of the biggest um, um, things I saw suddenly when this uh, Leonardo DiCaprio movie, The Revenant, came out, right? I saw this on a 10-bit 4K Blu-ray and HDR on a very well-calibrated display. That was the first time I really I thought, oh my God, I've never seen so much detail just generally in a picture, right? And, and there were shades of green I've never seen. There were shades of blue I've never seen, right? And so um, maybe from, from that perspective, and speaking of this, um, how would you describe what HDR truly is? I mean, um, maybe from a language perspective, how to use the language HDR as, as, a, as a filmmaker. What is HDR? So in 2016, when uh, I did the paper of breaking out of a 100-inch box, I, I talked about a few terms that were like intra-scene, inter-scene, and I talked about the various, um, some various types of HDR interactions that you don't really get with SDR. And, you know, one of those bright brights, dark darks, that kind of thing. And the inter-scene, intra-scene was very interesting because it talks about variability in, in the light levels. And why is that important? Um, because it, it's part of the lexicon. You, we need to start developing new language to talk about HDR because those interactions and those light level interactions are unique um, to this, this, this format. And so, for example, um, you, can, you can take the idea of, um, uh, of an adaptation, you know, how your eyes adapt to certain light levels. And from that paper in 2016, we talked about interscene and intrascene, and uh, I've developed that more over the past few years, and even coined a few phrases of high adaptation variability and low adaptation variability. And what that means is, imagine that you've got a scene that, uh, let's just say, a Vegas morning. You know, you wake up, you're, you know, a person wakes up in, a, in the room. It's got smells of cigar smoke. It's dark. The, the curtains are closed. You know, stuff's everywhere. And, you know, hungover, they're walking towards the bar trying to find that, you know, whatever they're looking for. And the flashback happens. Boom, you're juxtapositioned with this bright lights, dancing, you know, the club scene, da-da-da-da. You're back to the person. They're like, oh, boy, okay. And then you get back to the, you know, maybe the police lights inside filling up the car, the red and blue flashing, flashing. Now, each of those positions, even though that's one scene, each of those positions have their own adaptation state, right? And it's not just about the establishing and reestablishing of the different adaptation states that's really interesting to me. There's an interest, it's also about the, the time between those adaptation states and the range of those adaptation states that we found is, is extremely interesting. And what it does, is it also, um, it allows us to, I would say, manipulate in new ways the viewer's experience and also get really intimate with the lighting and the reactions to that lighting um, that you really couldn't achieve with SDR. And so that is extremely exciting to look into and it's the variation and variability of the adaptation states. We also looked at that 
I wrote a, a, a script and had it filmed in LA under the, uh, with these guys in uh, Moai Films uh, with Lucas Colombo. And um, it's called One Way Ticket. And in that, we introduced the Thomas. And the Thomas is a, is a, is a process. It's a light process, right? And I, I named it that because I was talking with my buddy, uh, Thomas, um, who works at Dolby. We were walking down the street one day, and I was like, man, I wish, I wish we could program light to, to create these reactions in people and be able to manipulate it. Like, and we started talking, and basically the Thomas is establishing a light level, like a, 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 a light level at kind of a low end, then slowly moving up to brighter and brighter and brighter so that your eyes don't notice the change, but that you get to an extreme bright level and your eyes have adapted without really even knowing, establishing that, then dropping it off, right? Dropping it off at or below the normal, the first uh, level, and then reestablishing that light level, and then bringing it up at or above the prior light level. That is the Thomas. And what we found was that if you vary the time it takes to drop off, whether it's slow or fast, and vary the time it takes to come back up, you get different reactions in people. And these new things start to happen. You can, you see prediction. You see your eyes, like when you really slow it up, you know, give it a nice slow uh, ramp up, people's eyes, so going from the same darkness to the same brightness, if you just vary the time, your eye and your, your physicalness of that response changes. And so that was very interesting for us to, to, to look into. Um, and it's just one of the many new features of HDR storytelling language that we need to develop. The Thomas is only one of those aspects. It's one of those processes, if you will, or light interactions, if you will. There's plenty of more to be discovered and, and termed and, and named and such like that. And to me, that's a very exciting thing to be able to create new things and new reactions and new interactions. It's like the C-47, right? Now, hopefully the Thomas will become something, right? Um, people say, oh, wow, they used the Thomas in that shot or whatever it was. And um, it, it, it's kind of fun. I mean, you, you also talked about, you were using those very fancy words, and I think those, those were describing HR pretty well already at that time, 2016. You talked about intraframe, intrascene, interscene HDR. And, and these are the four words I think uh, that would be really interesting to understand, especially for our audience, to uh, uh, elaborate a little bit further on Are those still valid today? I mean, with all the new modern, modern tools we have and, and all the, the grading opportunities and grading tools that are out there, and now with the technology that's out there, the monitoring that's out there, you think those, those, um, um, yeah, those um, aspects are still valid today? The language is developing. And what I mean by that is there, there are words and terms and phrases that will continue to be used for creating content in standard dynamic range and high dynamic range. It's going to be the same. But there's going to be these new words that come out and new phrases and, and new requirements to be able to communicate on set what you're trying to do. You know? And so um, in the 2016 paper, uh, Breaking Out of 100 Net Box, I had talked about the four or four different, and it's not the only ones, but four different um, phrases, if you will, you know, interframe, intraframe, interscene, inter, intrascene, 
Um, and that just basically means within a single frame or and then uh, amongst other frames. So, you know, intra is between um, or inter frame is between frames. Intra is within a single frame. Um, and then inter scene um, and intra scene is those things within a single scene or scenes next to each other. And that those terms are still valid. Now, whether they want to use those to describe how if, if that's going to become an industry term, I don't know. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't trying to make those you know, part of the language. It was to say, hey, look, these are some aspects of HDR that we need to start to find, that we need to, to look at and, and come up with these ideas so that we can communicate that stuff uh, on set, etc. And those terms are still valid today. So the interframe, the inter, the intraframe, interscene, inter, interscene. Um, in fact, we've taken the interscene and intrascene and and moved that, and I've coined the phrase, um, you know, low adaptation variability and high adaptation variability from those initial terms. And what that means is how you vary the light um, and the range of the variation within a scene, a shot, or a frame, if you will, or a set of scenes. How big is your variation? How big is the variation in the adaptation states, to be very clear? Is the adaptation states coming from a very low adaptation, very low light adaptation? And then at the end of the movie, or some other point in the movie, you're extremely, extremely bright, so you're ad adapted here, where if you put those next to each other, there's no common light levels. You know, that variability is what you experience outside and inside. So you could have a really nice warm day, very bright, you know, sun's at 3 o'clock, and it's extremely bright, and then you walk into a pitch black room with no windows. Right? And that's your reality. That's the experience. That's high variability. Right? Very, very open um, in the dark room, very, very closed iris in the outside world. And that's a I would describe that as high variability. Now, it's not just those two states, though. It's also take it the interscene and say, okay, how often, how much are you varying this? How much is it just kind of like, oh, it's a documentary, it's internal, all the light's the same, it's low adaptation variability. Like this scene here, this whole, movie, this whole interview is, gonna, is not going to have very much adaptation variability, right? Because it's, it's one adaptation state, if you don't put any other B-roll in, right? <laughs> um, but if we took this outside and shot you know, next to my car and we put it in HDR, that would be you know, a high variability scene. But now how much are we doing throughout the whole clip, the whole movie? So it applies to these concepts of how much you use it per scene, per shot, as well as over the overall scene. So those are kind of the things that um, I like to, or I hope, that the industry starts to look at and not just rely on the common words to describe content because it, it limits what you might do in a way. And again, that's that's a very big statement, and I don't I don't want to come across like oh I know this for a fact, but having the words to describe it gives more opportunity to, to maybe maybe branch off of that and try something else, and then try something else, and really explore this range of HDR that we have, 
and, and not just be safe, you know, under the 200 nit mark, right? Um, there's nothing wrong in that. It's just, I would like new experiences. I would like to experience that stuff. And I want something different. I want to be pulled into a story that makes me feel like I'm there or makes me feel like maybe I'm not there, but I'm, I relate to it in a way that I, I didn't relate to an SDR version of that story. Um, so I'm very excited about that in the industry. And I've always been excited. That's kind of what got me to take this job at Dolby is that 30,000 nit monitor, just seeing that like that's possible. Wow, okay, I might be enjoying content one day and actually look at the TV or whatever I'm looking at it on. It might not be a square box. It might be some other thing. And I might mistake that for reality, which might be great for that moment. Uh, you know, and that's the hope. All right. Now, so for example, um, we all know there is the term SDR trim pass, right? And uh, for example, and um, it would be interesting to understand a little bit further again, maybe in the context to what was done in the past, right? Um, in the early days, in the infancy of HDR versus today, um, maybe thinking about those tools. Are those tools uh, where you have HDR going to be converted to SDR versus actually doing a true HDR grading, a manual grading, a manual grade, right? Um, um, where are we today in that aspect? I mean, compared to a couple of years ago, is, is that something you um, would still support or are, what's your view on those kind of things? In their initial days of HDR grading and, and having Dolby Vision come out, um, we used an algorithm um, and we called it CM 2.9 or DM 2.9. And that looked at the HDR image and it analyzed it and then did the, what I would say is a suggested 709 mapping, the initial mapping. Now, some people loved that mapping. Some people said, you know what, done. You know, check mark, we're, we're happy with the SDR down conversion. Other people said, you know what, this is a great starting point. Let's move from there and start manipulating it. Because you can imagine that what kind of interactions you're going to get at an HDR level, like the light level impact or something like that, you're not going to get an SDR. And so you might approach that same scene in two different ways. In fact, that's what happened in, in um, one of these Apple iTunes uh, pieces of content that I graded with Lou Levinson was they knew that they had this 4,000 nit lights in the background, you know, smashing forward, you know, onto the crowd because they wanted to get the sense that it was at the concert venue. And then we had to play that on an SDR monitor. So to get that impact, uh, Lou said, you know what, let's push saturation, you know, really saturate it, make it vivid at the SDR level. So that, yeah, you've got two different experiences. One is less saturated, brighter, and the SDR version was more contrasty, more saturated, dimmer. And that was the impact, and that was a control. That was a choice, knowing that they could not achieve the same as, as an HDR release, because you know, you're not gonna hit 6, 000, or 600 nits, or 1,000 nits, or even 4,000 nits. You're not gonna hit that in an SDR. Anyway, that, those tools at, at, at 2.9 were very good, but we listened to the industry and they said, well, what else do we need? And a lot of it came back around, you know, mid-tone contrast, you know, being able to really control that mid-tone, um, you know, to get skin tone just right, to get the fields, to get the, the variations in, in scenery, to just feel um, like 
like that it represented the HDR in a way that um, told the story, right? Um, and obviously knowing that you're not going to hit the same impact, right? Um, and so that was good. And so we took those comments and we pulled a lot of those into the DM 4.0, which is the latest version of the Dolby Vision um, content mapping and display mapping technology. And we added some tools. And those tools have been really well received. And we're still researching into new tools. We're still researching into to more capabilities to really dial in that, that SDR, um, knowing that the industry is trying, or at least there's attempts in the industry to move away from that 100 nit mark. There's some attempts to go to 200 nits. There's some attempts to go to different, you know, to move that up because the technologies are not not tube technologies anymore and limited to 100 nits. And there's no requirement other than the standards and the accepted, you know, workflows. And so whether that happens or not, I, you know, that's not up to me. Um, I don't have a big opinion about that. Um, but what we do know is that there's going to be um, very bright experiences, and there's going to be a tiered down to different models of TVs and devices that the, the content creator has to, if they're really interested in conveying their artistic intent, that they're going to have to have tools to dial in each one of those tiers or each of those tiers to, to a, a level that they're comfortable with, that they're happy with, that they're excited about even saying, okay, and this is, if you look at the newest tools um, that Dolby Vision is offering coming in Resolve 18, uh, some dot release pretty soon, you're going to start seeing the ability of mapping to even cinema deliverables. Um, and so not that that's necessarily required or suggested, it's just a capability that people have asked for, right? To say, hey, we've got a thousand nit or a 4,000 nit master or a 2,000 nit master, and we want to create a cinema version from that. Now, that's, that could be a workflow that is acceptable and good for some people. Other people are like, no way, we're going to do our 48 nit master and our 108 nit master, you know, cinema masters, then we'll derive the others the other way around. It's up to you. Again, there's no requirements to work either way. What we're trying to do is provide those tools and, and those capabilities that however you want to work, that you're doing it in the most highest quality, that you're doing it in a way that's accurate, that's calibrated, that's correct, that you know is really able to convey your intention. Yeah, so um, if you would ask, if I would ask you, yeah, um, so uh, do you have a special style? Do you have a special style as an artist, right? Um, and uh, you would rate yours versus someone else's, right? I would imagine that from listening to what you just said, um, you probably want to say, yeah, you probably want to discover it first and, and do something and do something new compared to what probably everybody else does, right? My style of grading was, uh, I would say it's, it, it varies depending on the subject matter, right, obviously, and then the genre. But I approach it mentally pretty much the same way every time. Um, I try to understand what the director is going for. I try to understand not only what they have said, but what is there, and, and really understand what's there, um, and understand 
not just from a single point of view in the sense of, okay, here's my frame, this is what I see. It's, uh, I think Walter Murch even said this, and it, it's coming into it and going out of it, right? That's extremely important because that, that takes you from someplace to someplace, then to another place. And that journey is just as much important than just an individual frame, and sometimes even more important. So understanding that arc of the story, understanding the arc of the emotion, the reactions that you're after, understanding what the intention is, I approach it in that every time is understanding that. And then I usually will, will typically build a standard uh, node tree that incorporates, you know, various things depending on uh, the, the project, right? Um, it's either one of, one of two or three node trees that I have. Um, and most of the node trees do have, um, you know, obviously, primaries and all that type of stuff for your initial you know, selections, contrast, etc. Um, but then there's also um, spots. So upper left, upper right, center, lower left, lower right, bottom, top, left, right. And have those as windows so that if I do need to um, you know, do a, a photography style manipulation in the sense of taking down light or removing light, um, and I think um, Colin Kelly does a wonderful job of explaining these type of interactions with light um, in, in a photographic um, context. Uh, I really liked how he presented that, that concept. Um, and it's true. You're, you're looking at the image that's been created and you want to do things in the way that honor the photography that's there, right? whether that be video or, or still frame. Um, and he does, a, again, Cullen does a, a wonderful job of that. And it just resonated with me that, yeah, that's, you're not trying to, a lot of times people will try to bring stuff up and try to bring things out. Whereas, um, I didn't realize this, but it, as Cullen had talked about, you, you know, sometimes just pulling down is the right move, right? Just separating things and, and leaving this, this established where it is and even though this is the most important thing, pulling that other stuff down just will bring that out. Um, and you can do that with either you know, tone, you can do that with color, you can do that with you know, focus, you can do that with uh, a lot of things. Um, and, and mix those together to really get to um, interesting interactions <laughs> with the frame. Uh, so from, from an HDR production perspective, what are the minimum requirements to get some decent results maybe or um, also uh, what are the tricks and maybe what do you want to have on the radar to create content with a camera that then can be used for proper HDR grading? You know Bill Bennett had given me those tips that I spoke on in the 2016 paper at SEMTI and he had he, this is from a lot of experience. He had shot some of the content at Dolby, and, and this is through years and years of experience. And and he recognized that there was a there is a slight difference between shooting for SDR and shooting for HDR. Um, and it's important to know that when you're in the editing room, in the color room, and you're making those choices, that sometimes that image may not be what it. it initially intended to be. And this day and age, you, you find a lot of times where the, the story is evolving, even in the editing room. And a scene that you thought was going to be high contrast bright ends up being low contrast dark. Uh, 
for example, whatever that is. So having that you know, ability to um, work with that footage, especially in an HDR sense, um, is, I'm not going to say it's required, because it, not every, not every, scene, or not every um, program should be shot with that in mind. Um, it's up to that crew, it's up to that director, it's up to that team of saying, this is how we're going to do this production. If they're going to shoot it just like they want to see it in the can and it's burned in, that's, that's their right. That, and they should do that if that's what they want to do. Um, if they want more flexibility, it's thinking that, hey, we might do something with this later. We might, you know, we want it to live longer. We want it to do various things, not just one thing. Um, then having that flexibility was what Bill was talking about. You know, as you, you know, um, make sure that you have enough detail in the darks, because as cameras, digital noise comes in, you, I mean, you, if you're going to lift something up, you're lifting up that noise. And if you're going to lift it up brightly, you're going to start to see a lot of that noise. And sometimes you can't recover that stuff. Or you've got such a heavily processed image that it takes away from the qualities that you captured that were, or that you're after. And then you've got a VFX shot or you've got you know, some kind of beauty work that needs to happen, um, which, again, just raises the budget, raises the budget, and time you know, extends the time out. Um, and, and those are real considerations. So what Bill was referring to and what I was speaking on is about if, if you know that's going to be the case, then make sure that you're not clipping and make sure that you've got enough detail in the bottom end because you can always bring that down right, in post. It's harder to bring it up. It's a lot easier to bring it down and hide that stuff by pushing it down than trying to you know, raise up and trying to fix what wasn't captured on the photo sites. Right, because everybody thinks that the photosites are just evenly, you know, all the all the light is coming and hitting the photosites evenly. No, it's not. It's it's variable. It's all over the place, and it's you know this photosite and this photosite are not receiving the same amount of light, even though the pixels are very close to each other. That's where you get the digital noise is from that that incongruent or light coming in and hitting the photosites. So to prevent that or offset that, open it up. You know, capture more light, capture what you really want to capture. So therefore, if that has to get brightened up into HDR or um, raised up for whatever use case, uh, you're not raising the noise as well. That's a, that's a great answer. I love it. Beautiful. I mean, um, you're absolutely right. And I, I couldn't agree more about everything you said. So looking at the monitor's point of view, for example, maybe before we talk about different flavors of HDR, I, I should say methodologies of, of HDR, right? Um, there are different ways of encoding HDR and um, distil distillating it from A to B. I mean, let's talk a little bit about the importance of calibration maybe for a minute. Um, how do you make sure that your chain is intact, right? How do you make sure, um, how important is calibration actually? I mean, even with HDR, you know, I, I talked to different people and sometimes they were like, oh no, there's no calibration required, right? No, HDR is different and stuff. So. Um, I think there's also a lot of misunderstanding that even with HDR, it's still very important that you actually get your display under control because HDR is driving your panels to the limit, right? Um, and um, it's basically driven very hard, especially in production. You probably want to check if everything is cool. So um, maybe talk a little bit about your own experience. Um, 
about the importance of calibration, getting your hardware right, making sure that everything works the way you can trust it and, and you have peace of mind that everything is right, right? I mean, especially maybe from an HDR perspective. The idea of calibration is, is extremely relevant. It was in the past, it, was, it is today, it will be tomorrow. It, if you're not accurate with your colors, then you're not getting the experience that's intended. And if you're okay with that, fine. You know, bright sells. You go in a Best Buy or you go in a, you know, a store, Costco, whatever. People are attracted to the pretty lights. Ooh, ah, you know, like flies to a fire. Um, and we know that it sells. It's a, it's a known marketing thing. And so, uh, yeah, there, there's that demo mode, right? Really bright imagery. Um, but for me, the most important thing is to know that I'm getting the experience that Steven Spielberg crafted. To know that I'm getting that, that, that how that person wanted to talk to me, wanted to show me this thing, wanted to communicate to me and get me to react. I want to make sure that, that that's pure as, as possible, pure as possible, right? Because that's really the experience, right? It's like as good as being there in a sense, right? You get a picture. If it's a little off, you have less feeling of being there. And so the color is extremely important to be accurate to that in that regard. Um, and so it's, it's, if you look back, you needed that, that consistency. Today in HDR, as they're really pushing these, these monitors to, to perform, um, the calibration is critical because it's, it's got such a wide range to deal with. Right? It's not just 100 nits of, of keeping it you know, calibrated. With that brighter light comes heat. <laughs> and that heat can change your calibration. So even in cameras, you know, you'll notice the, 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 it gets heated up. This, the capture on some of the cameras starts to change. Right, uh, they're working on that, and some of the better cameras do a better job of maintaining that 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 heat level and that consistency across that. But that's a that's a very big challenge for HDR, managing that heat or having the algorithms be smart enough to keep the calibration across all the heat levels as you ramp up and pull down. Um, and I think that's 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 something for the future. Maybe an AI, or maybe there's something there that that can help that process. It's not my business, but. I know it's important. Uh, we have a 4,000 nit monitor, you know, the Pulsar, and you know, that's just the light getting through, <laughs> right? If 90% or 80% of that light getting through is 4,000 nits, what is that panel actually producing? Um, it's massive, right? Uh, and so all these TVs and, and all these these you know monitors and 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 such are all going through that same process. They're, they're managing the heat, they're managing the color, and they want to be accurate across all the different you know, temperature ranges um, so that you get a consistent image um, from the you know, opening moment of color grading to the end, to the opening point of experiencing that story to the end that it's consistent um, to really sell what that, that director is trying to tell you or give you as an experience, I should say. So um, from your point of view, right, from your experience, what would you recommend? I mean, is like um, a truly um, recalibrating your tools, how often would you want to do this, for example? I mean, um, how do you do it? Are there specific recommendations you would have, for example, 
to ensure that, or tips and tricks that you say, yeah, that's how I would do it. That's how I make sure that my equipment is right, that my display is right. So you're putting me on the spot. Uh, of like how often should you calibrate your monitors, right? Like we're sitting in the home of, of Cowman. How often should you calibrate your monitors? My personal answer is like every other hour you should calibrate your your, uh, your monitors if you have the time and budget. Um, shout out to Cowman. Uh, in reality though, I think you, you need to look at the technology. And, and my real answer is this. Every studio has got someone, hopefully, someone in charge of that workflow. Hopefully that person is communicating with the creative department in that facility and there is some establishment of a workflow for the content they're creating, for the partners that they're delivering to, and that that has been thought about and considered based on the technology of the time, the weaknesses the strengths of the technology they're considering, the budgets that they have, and it's a decision made correctly, <laughs> or it's a decision made knowing that there's going to be considerations and not it's not going to be perfect, and that this is the workflow they've chosen and it's going to give them a consistent result and that they follow that, those, those guidelines. If, and so they should be doing their homework. They should be doing those tests. They should be looking at that stuff saying, okay, this, this particular show is very, very bright. So we notice that it's, you know, we're measuring the heat. We're, we know it's going to get up. So we've got to calibrate more often. I'm guessing at that, what process they should put into place. But I think that that's a consideration that needs to be thought about in a, in a studio that's delivering content with any hope of consistency, with any hope of quality uh, checking. Um, I, I think that's important, if not critical, that you know when I'm sitting down in front of a monitor to do a grade that what I saw today or what I'm seeing today is what I saw yesterday. Because that's the quickest way to lose confidence in a director, in a production, in a piece of software, in a piece of hardware. It's the quickest way when you don't have consistency. You're going to lose that potential client. You're going you're gonna to lose that potential. A person may lose um, the, the trust it has in that particular piece of hardware that they're using. Um, and that's bad. <laughs> it's a bad scenario. Um, so calibration should follow your workflow. It should follow the content you're working on. It should follow what is needed. That's really the answer. What do you need to do? How often do you need to do it based on what you're doing? That's the answer of how often you should do calibration. If it's not accurate, it's wrong. So how often do you want to be wrong? So Maybe let's talk a little bit about the different um, HDR methodologies, as, as we mentioned before. Um, because we talked about um, Dolby Vision, the master finishing, and we also talked about, um, of course, Dolby Vision as a system, right? Um, and I think there are a couple of times where um, people still don't understand what the differences are between those different HDR methodologies. Um, I think we understand a lot about Dolby Vision, but maybe give us a little bit of more of your expertise and your knowledge um, 
on how those different systems work and where also Dolby Vision is superior and why that is the go-to uh, methodology basically for filmmakers and for the studios to preserve creative intent. The HDR landscape is vast if you look at it today as compared to the early days. Um, you have a number of choices when you're trying to think about shooting or working in HDR, or delivering in HDR. Now let's talk about Dolby Vision, um, how it's different. Um, you can, again, with the new tool set in 4.0, uh, the DM 4.0, you'll, you'll see that inside Resolve, you know, do you want a 2.9 or a 4.0? There's new tools available to you um, that allow you to really manipulate that, that image on a lower performing tier monitor. Dialing in what you want to do, then saturation, midtone contrast, lift gamma gain, um, your, your, I'll say it, color saturation, it's like chroma intensity, so it, it, it's a really interesting way of looking at chroma when you shift them around. And also playing them against each other, you can often find really compelling ways to make in images you know, really sing uh, as compared to the HDR image, knowing you're in a compromised state in a, in a lower performing tier. Um, so the, the variations in the HDR world, uh, or as I think, how did you put it, the, uh, the different modes of HDR or different offerings of, of HDR, um, really come down to how much control do you want? How important is that image being seen by the audience to you, <laughs> right? If it's very important, then you want to strive to more control. If, if it's a one-off, it's important, but you know, it's not going to you know, force you to spend extra money or force you to do other things, then maybe HLG is, is what you're looking for. Um, again, that's, that's not the only consideration. I don't want to come across that way. But in my mind, I look at it as the control mechanism. So in a control world, to me, that's the tiers that I, that I would say exist. And that's how I'm going to judge them. Right? Um, that has nothing to do with capture either. So a lot of the capture is in HLG, and that's important. Um, and so in that regard, that's the current state of today of capturing in HLG. Some products are going to capture in MPQ. Some are capturing in log format. Some are capturing um, in a, a raw, bare log format. <laughs> you know. Um, and so there's all these, this capture technology that's coming along, which is extremely exciting. Um, and how Dolby can actually help those capture processes. Um, even working from a, a, an HLG capture um, you know, starting point, um, it's a, that's a very exciting and new field um, that's, that's exploring. And it's on, what, a couple billion devices out there in the world? You know? well, people probably heard of iPhones, that type of thing. So um, it's an important technology. All right. Great. Yes. No. That's 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 great. That's exactly what I was thinking, and I think this is also why we are big fans of Dolby Vision as a system because I think it, it has those specific components that are really making a difference, and I think this is this is why it's as successful as it is. Right. Um, so Shane, we have covered a lot of things so far. We talked about your original paper in 2016, breaking out of the 100 nit box. We talked about the different HDR methodologies. We talked about monitoring displays. Um, we've covered so much about um, the language of HDR, interscene, interscene, and all those kind of things. And we also covered calibration um, and how important calibration is. 
Now, with calibration, as we, we discussed, I mean, there are meters, you, you do your measurements, you calibrate, maybe even a 1D LUT, 3D LUT, you load, load those things into the monitor. But there are also other tools, right? Like, for example, a 4K Blu-ray disc. And you actually recently worked on a project with Stacy Spears on the uh, Manzel, Pierce Spears and Manzel uh, benchmark disc, right? And you were part of the, uh, the HDR montage and you were color grading the, 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 the program for Stacy. And there's a lot of great stuff that actually happened during that time when you, when you worked on that project. And so maybe let's talk a little bit about the disc and maybe start uh, talk about how all of this actually came into existence and how Stacy approached you to yeah, help him to create a great tool that everybody can use, even without calibration equipment, to get a much better understanding what their display is doing. The uh, benchmark DVD with Stacy Spears is uh, one of my favorite stories to interact with and, and to, to communicate. I, in fact, I was at Display Week um, a couple of months back, or month back, or whatever it was, in San Jose, and uh, I'm walking through the show, and lo and behold, there's my content you know, on the, the Stacey Spears content and the latest version of it still being used to show off displays and to, and not only to show off a display, but also to show how the different technologies um, have limitations um, against other technologies, right? So same content, you know, say, look, we handle it better. We do these things. So to show off the content, even knowing, I mean, and it was a stress test disc. So um, when I when Stacy Spears reached out to Dolby, um, he's had a long history of interacting with Dolby, and we connected. Um, and when he reached out to us to do the grading, he asked, you know, you know, that we work together. And and as we started to develop the the initial grades for this, it was it was a good conversation because he wanted it to be the closest as it could, the closest, closest it could to reality and taking advantage of the 10,000 nit signal so that the TVs of the next few generations, as many generations as possible, could be tested against each other, right? Really stress testing the capabilities in color and gamut in in brightness, in levels, in motion artifacts, in all these different elements. And so as we started to develop the grades on each, each scene, it was fun because we would attack certain things, you know, and, and really push. Like there's, uh, like there's this one uh, scene where there's a mountain scene. You're kind of up in the mountains and the sun's rising, you know, and there's dark clouds and all that kind of stuff. Well, there's no sun in that shot. Right, I put the sun there, right? <laughs> because you saw the sun shifting, but the sun's just out of the scene, right? And so everybody that, or most everybody, looks at that, and I even put a little bit of motion and a little bit of size, you know, on it to to make it feel like that's the sun moving through the sky as you do this this capture and you see it kind of rising through. You actually get the sense that the sun is rising. So, and we put that at ten thousand nits. And we really put a lot of color into it too. So it not only is bright, but it's also challenging on bright, colorful objects. Um, we did a lot of things in the most mundane scenes um, to really kind of would trip you out. If you look at the Aja, uh, the Colorfront scope uh, version 
um, that Stacy put out, you'll see that one of the early scenes is this kind of sunrise scene on a on a field. It looks pretty, you know, dull, just kind of a dull field, and and then some mountains in the background. And you look at it, and you're like, okay, it's pretty. But you look at the scopes. That thing is it's maxed out in the greens, the deep, dark greens. It almost fills the Rec 2020 container. Like you look at it, you're like, that is that? And it doesn't, doesn't make sense what you're looking at. You're, you would expect if you saw that image on, the, on a scope that the image would be super bright, maybe even a green screen, right? And you're like, that would be amazing. And then you look at the scene and it's just dull. But that's the power of the accuracy of the of that disc is that there's there's these deep dark level deep saturated colors that'll show you if your TV can make those uh, can do that or handle that or or what that response should be versus a TV that can handle that right it was really uh, a fun project uh, and fun is not even the right word it was a challenging project to get right and to get it exacting to what Stacy was really trying to achieve. Again, I, that's part of what my job was, is to make sure that he got what he wanted out of those scenes. There were scenes where we had over 2,000 nit APLs, average picture levels, right? 2,000 nits, not, not the bottom, but 2,000 nits as an APL, and that's, that to me, and it, it, it looked right, it looked like it was, you were there, and it was appropriate for the content. Is it appropriate for The Handmaid's Tale? No. <laughs> you know, is it appropriate for, you know, Game of Thrones? Probably not, unless it's a winter scene. It's not about that. It was about what we were trying to achieve. The HDR allowed us, and working with the Pulsar, allowed us to get what we were after. And to me, that's what HDR represents in a way, right? It, it allows you more range to, to be aggressive or subtle or whatever you want and, and have that range in order to, to elicit those, those reactions that you're after. Uh, and that's what we did with uh, the Stacey Spears Benchmark DVD. Now that's a great story. I mean, everybody loves the disc and the disc is amazing. So um, good job on that. And we have all seen the material, it's beautiful. Um, maybe finally we should actually have a look into the future. So we talked about 2016. You were giving, giving things names, you know, um, the HDR language. And uh, while it was still in its infancy, like HDR technology by itself, and you helped to shape that at that time. Now. Fast forward those seven, eight years and you look into the future. What do you think what Shane Ruggieri thinks what the next big thing might be? What might be the next bigger HDR thing that's coming um, in a few years from now? What's, what's your vision and, and where would you like to go with HDR? I mean, if you would open it up and you could do whatever you want to do. What, what is it what you would like to do? And what do you think where it should go? I like to think about the future as being extremely bright <laughs> and volumetric, I would imagine. I would imagine that you're going to experience content in much deeper personal ways. I mean, the, 
the concept of storytelling and the genres as well as the formats, meaning how we consume it, being shorter clips, uh, you know, the TikToks of the world, the, the YouTube um, entertainment, you know, style is making a huge impact. Metaverse, the, you know, that type of stuff is having a huge impact. And we don't know where those things are going yet. You know, it's the still the early days of the internet, if you will, before utility. I think once utility starts to happen for, you know, say metaverse and for VR and for those type of experiences, even, and not just on a headset, um, you, you're going to look at new technologies such as holographic, you know, projection. You're going to see, you know, the ability to see 3D screens that, you know, you're, it's going to be a flat screen, but it's going to feel like you're 10 feet deep or whatever that is. There's technologies today where you can get a good couple feet um, of depth on a flat screen um, and in a compelling way. Um, I've seen some demos of that and from outside companies, not within Dolby. And those are things that you can go look up on, on the web right now. So as you, in my mind, we're going to start to shift away from necessarily these square boxes, right? <laughs> of enjoying content only on a square box um, where we, we start to enjoy content maybe amongst other people, maybe amongst other objects and things. Obviously, AR, VR is going to make a big impact, uh, or AR is going to make a big impact. That might be, might be the next closest thing that we, we see as a big major shift. And HDR will be um, a key ingredient within that technology because being able to, if you think about AR in that regard, approaching reality levels makes that, would make that experience more compelling because it's closer to the experience of what you're <laughs> augmenting, right? Augmenting reality. So if you can achieve reality light levels and then augment it, that connection is going to be more believable, more you know, connected, I'll just say more connected to you somehow. Um, and you're gonna have different, one of my favorite terms is psychophysiological response to it. Right, so how you respond to some physicalness that's happening to you um, is important, and so bringing everything close together, meaning light levels, color volumes, that kind of stuff, experiences, that's going to have a big impact. So, future, I think is bright. I think it's closer to reality. I think it. it I think it's still going to have the distance from reality, but being able to achieve reality light levels and color volumes. Um, and having the ease of use and communicating and, and creating content. Oh my gosh, it's getting so much easier to create compelling, interesting content. Um, not necessarily storytelling, I mean the ease of actually generating video and being able to get it out there is getting easier. It still takes skill, it still takes time and craft and education and knowledge and a passion for it to really do it well. And that I think those are the things that I were, were talked to about earlier is understanding that human condition, understanding what the audience is experiencing or how they experience so that the experience you give them 
is is what you're trying to do. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be pretty fun. All right, um, that, that's that's great, beautiful. I mean, uh, I think we're almost now at the end <laughs> of the session, and I really enjoy the conversation with you because I think you're really kind of in this intersection, right, with your job also, but you know, in, as a as an artist and as a technologist, basically, you know, at the intersection of um, using technology as a tool to help people express art, right? Like the the pen is only a, a tool for the writer, right? And the imagination, imagination, everything, that's actually what makes the, the story come to life. And I think that's what we have here, right? The sky basically is the limit. Um, I think it's just beautiful. Um, now, if I would ask you to finish a sentence here, um, to say, if I would ask you, color matters because, what would be your answer? Accurate color matters. <laughs> that's why color matters. Because accurate color and accurate intention matters in storytelling. If you don't have it, you, you don't have a convincing story. That was an awesome conversation, Shane. Thank you very much for coming by. Um, finally, we made it. Finally, we have you here on the show. And we really look forward to having you as a guest in the future. And we wish you all the best with Dolby. And uh, yeah. Hopefully, going to stay in touch and talk to you soon. Marcel, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.